Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. This latest episode is one of my favourites. Early in the year when I spoke to the fly fishing historian and writer Andrew Hurd about his monumental William Blacker trilogy, he had mentioned the Limerick-born Edward Fitzgibbon, aka Ephemera, whom he described as one of, if not the most, influential angling writers ever. I had to find out more, and so I caught up with Andrew to find out about the life and times of this often forgotten Irishman, who, at the time of his death in London in 1857, was spoken of in the same breath as Isaac Walton. What can you say to a man like this, except he deserves to be known as, as Ireland's greatest sporting journalist, and one of his finest writers, I think. Um, he was born in 1803 into a reasonably wealthy family from Limerick, and he spent his early childhood at a place, I think it's called Monagay, near Newcastle. Um, and there's a little stream there called the Deal, which has, a, which has had a trout in it and a good mayfly hatch then. So um, he, he basically came from rural Ireland, but his father appears to have been a land agent. And he managed eight farms, and I have a suspicion he was one of the, I don't know if you know, um, during the famine or before the famine, they, they, the, the thing that caused the famine was sharecropping, which was a, a, a wonderful uh, English idea. And the um, Fitzgibbon's father may have been one of the middlemen who managed a series of farms. And basically, he would not have been a very popular man because the whole system was rigged and, of course, ended up being copied all over the world, notably in the Mississippi Delta and the cotton fields, and it had exactly the same results. But anyway, Fitzgibbon himself lived with his parents on a little farm there, which was he calls Ballygaline, uh, which means a place near a ford, I think, in Irish. Um and he fished there for sticklebacks, which he called galligaskins, which is, again, I think the, the Irish for, for, for wild soldiers, or Irish soldiers anyway. And the, the farm's still there today. I've, I've been near it. I didn't realize at the time, but it, it's called Ballygaleen now, as opposed to Goleen. Um, and it, it, it's, it's very close to the deal, which runs into the Shannon anyway. Um, but, but I mean, it was a lovely place, and they, he grew up there on this farm until he was about, I suppose, 10 or something. And then the family moved to Newcastle itself. And up to that point, Fitzgibbon had just, like, fished like all of us probably did when we were young. He was just with whatever he had, and he was basically a coarse fisherman. But he found a, a fat little priest, he said. Uh, and this, this priest made him a present of a 10-foot Daniel O'Shaughnessy rod, complete with a reel and a line. And Fitzgibbon said this came his way after the priest had drunk several tumblers of whiskey punch. So, and, and that was how he became a fly fisherman. So, so we've got, we got this picture, or I have this picture, of Edward Fitzgibbon, who's like Ireland's greatest angling journalist, and a rod made by Daniel O'Shaughnessy, who is probably the most famous hook maker of all time, um, and was a, a, another of Ireland's most wonderful characters in that period. I mean, he, O'Shaughnessy hooks 
were so valuable that people used to dive into the water to get them back if they snagged. It was a real golden era, wasn't it? That time, like Ireland created in terms of fly fishing for Irish um, innovation and characters. Like. Oh, yeah. I mean, like the Ireland basically wrote the history of the salmon fly, and I've got a book coming out which is going, going to make this point. But O'Shaughnessy, he he designed the Limerick hook. He's the guy who refined the bend and made the shape we still use today. Incredible, incredible, the legacy, like. Oh, I mean, amazing. I mean, he drank himself from this world into the land of the spirits in about, I forget, shortly after the 19th century began. But but his hooks were used as a pattern for every other limerick right into our time, near enough. I mean, they, they still share that bend. Uh, that, the O'Shaughnessy story is an incredible one, too. But anyway, back to our point. <laughs> <laughs> um the, so there, there, there was Fitzgibbon, and, and he started fly fishing in Ireland, but only for trout. And when he was about 15 or 16, his father died very unexpectedly, and the family moved to England to stay with the relatives. Um, and he, Fitzgibbon didn't fish again for 20 years. So basically, he wouldn't pick up a rod and line until, until he was nearly 35. So basically, when he left uh, Ireland, well, he left the fly fishing behind, essentially. Yeah, yeah. He he just never had the opportunity. He, he's, what happened was his mother and and the rest of the family went to stay with relatives in London, it's thought. And, and Edward was sent to Bedfordshire, where he sort of, he did something. He worked on an estate there, and he, he roamed around and, and did a bit of shooting on the side and things. And then he was apprenticed to a surgeon in Holborn. And this is where the story really starts, because he hated that. He ran away um, after a couple of years, and he signed up as an assistant at a school. And, it, and there he educated himself in, in the classics. He read widely. And at the age of 21, he got bored. So he decided that he was going to see the classical world. And he persuaded a friend of his, they had no money. They were going to go to Greece. <laughs> How? So it was typical Fitzgibbon. Uh, typical Fitzgibbon. The friend fell ill, and Fitzgibbon went anyway. And he got to Marseille, where he discovered French women. <laughs> and he stayed there for about half a dozen years. He he learned to speak French fluently. He read French literature uh, in French, and he doubtless became fluent with French women as well. And so, uh, so somewhere there, he, he has a failed love affair. And he never made it to Greece? I, yeah, never got that. <laughs> Marseille was like the limit. So, uh, and uh, after that, he, he comes back. And, and he arrived back in London in about 1830. And at this point, he, uh, he, he hadn't got a job. So he wrote some letters about the political situation in France from the Morning Chronicle. And they took him on as a political correspondent and they sat him in Parliament where he met Charles Dickens. Oh, my God. That's as quick cool, because for people to know, this is when, when Dickens started his career, he was doing political sketches. Yeah, he started off as a political correspondent. And, and, but it wasn't long before the, he, he moved over to the Observer, which is still going today. And he became a theatre critic there, which was probably more suited to him than politics. And he became really well known as a theatre critic. He didn't write 
much under his own name, but he was well respected in the trade, and everyone thought he would end up as the editor of the, of the newspaper. But in 1836, something happened, and I, and I suspect it was that he began drinking fairly seriously. So he moved out to London, and he went to Nottingham. And um, two things happened in Nottingham, and one of these changed the course of, of Anglian history, pretty much. He, he got married there, was the first thing. He, he, he saw this beautiful farmer's daughter, and, and one thing led to another, and their father caught them. And he had a shotgun marriage, <laughs> literally. <laughs> and he, he, he stayed reasonably faithful to this woman, if not entirely faithful, for the remainder of his life. Um, but they were so notorious, they had to move back to London. Can I ask you, um, uh, just on that, Andrew, why did he leave London for not? Because it seems like his career was going so well. Um, you know, theatre critic, he was, was there an incident that led him to leave, like that he had to go? Alcohol. It's got to be. I, it, it, I don't think he got tired of, of, of what was uh, of his job. I think he loved it. And I think he would stay with the theatre critic forever, forever. But I, it's hard to tell. But... But something happened. He moved right out of town. And I think he began seriously drinking around then, which was to be a real, like, flavour of his life in a way. So was it a sense of he kind of needed to get out of the bright lights in Big City to somewhere quieter? That wouldn't be so tempting? I think probably. Something, something like that. I have no idea, really, but I, I would strongly suspect alcohol was connected with it because it dominated the rest of his life in a lot yeah. of ways. So he, so he goes to Nottingham, gets married, but then ends up coming back to London. He ends up coming back to London, but he did one other thing when he was in Nottingham. He decided to take out fishing again. Ah. He saw fly fishermen on the trend, and he engaged a guide, a tackle dealer called William Shipley. And it turned out that Shipley had this manuscript he couldn't get published. It was called The True Treatise of Fly Fishing and Trolling. And Fitzgibbon edited it and got got it published. So was that his kind of first taste of angling journalism or angling writing? Well, that was what got him established because he wrote a couple of letters about that fishing trip to Bell's Life in London. And the editor of Bell's Life already knew him because... Bells and the Observer shared the same office in the Strand. And he suddenly gets these two letters about angling from Fitzgibbon. He knows how good a journalist he is. And he says, why don't you write me a regular column? There's a couple of things strike me, um, Andrews. Like, he must have been such an impressive character and an impressive writer that, you know, he can just turn, oh, yeah. he can turn up from France and, you know, basically start writing about, you know, gets a job as a political correspondent on, off the back of his observations on French politics. He he then turns his hand to theatre criticism, um, yeah. and, and he becomes widely known from that. Uh, and then he just turns his hand to fly fishing or writing, and he's offered a column off the back. Like, he, A, he must have been so talented. Um, and we, we'll turn to his writing maybe in a little bit. But there's one question that stands out for me is, if he hadn't gone to Nottingham, he probably mightn't have rediscovered fly fishing because he would have been stuck in London. Do you think? I think that's probably right. I think it, it, he wasn't even—that's right—he wasn't even fishing. So it was just chance, like so many things in life. It was just a series of chances that put him where he was. And uh, yeah, I think that's right. If he—if he'd never gone, if he'd never engaged Fitz, uh, Shipley as his guide, 
that the true treatise would never have been published probably he wouldn't have been known for publishing the book and he would never have got those two articles because like you said it's not like he said i get the sense there was no grand plan career plan with him anyway he kind of just went with whatever took his fancy or his interest at the time so he gets offered yep. the, the, the the was it a fly fishing or just a fishing column was it or was it specifically fly fishing yeah, well, it was a column on angling in general. Okay. And the reason it was a column on angling in general was there were there had never been a regular column on angling ever. Wow. So this is the first of its kind. Uh, absolutely. There had never been one before. In fact, I mean, the number of articles published in angling in the magazines that were available wasn't that great. Um, by the time he'd finished writing, Fitzgibbon wrote about twice as many articles about angling as had ever been published in British magazines. My God. So he becomes quickly the de facto voice of angling journalism, angling writing. Pretty much. Pretty much. But in the most interesting way you can possibly imagine. Um, between 1839, when his column began, and 1857, he wrote more than 250 articles, and they total half a million words. That's basically three or four long books. Very few Anglin journalists ever have managed to challenge that total. And what kind of topics was he writing on? Basically, uh, it was a mix. Um, to begin with, it was mostly about course fishing. At the time... There was no distinction then between fly fishing and course fishing. It was just fishing. I mean, they, they, they didn't even have a word for course fishing then. <laughs> when, when a femur was alive, I mean, he would die before there was any concept of course fish being different from game fish. So, so basically, he wrote about angling in general, and I mean, anything from fishing for gudgeon all, all the way up to salmon. But crucially, he didn't start writing about salmon until quite late on. And there's a reason for this I'll get on to in a minute. Was he based in London at this time? Like, so when was he getting to do his fishing? Like, where was his experience coming from? Basically, it, there was lots of places to fish around London then. It wasn't the... Right, uh, I mean, if you live in London now, you'd have to journey quite a long way from the capital, really, to have a realistic chance of catching trout. But then, I mean, you could catch big trout in the Thames spinning. You could, I mean, really big trout. You, you could go and fish any number of little streams around London, ranging from the Colne um, to, ah, forget the name of it, There's a, the Wandle. They all had mayfly hatches, and they flowed through what is actually now, you know, London, not the city, but the suburbs of London. And so you could, you could go, you could just take a, a short trip by a carriage, and you could go fishing anywhere in London then. They, they haven't completely polluted the environment. I get the sense then, like for somebody who didn't fish for 20 years, he kind of rediscovered or rekindled his love when he was in Nottingham. And then for 20 years when he's writing the column, he, does he just throw himself into the lifestyle and philosophy? And, you know, is, is he kind of the, um, the Walton of the time? Like? Well, he was. He was. I mean, they're, they're, that's very much the case. I mean, he, he's, he definitely was. Um, the, the reason, by the way, he chose his name Ephemera, he, he said in one of his columns, he said, that word points out at a single dash human nature, frail, fleeting, faithless, here today, gone tomorrow, so am I. That gives you a sense of his writing, doesn't it? Like his, his kind of his, his power of the English language. Like He was a fantastic character, I think. I mean, he, he was, 
uh, well, I'll, I'll get on to it in a second. But anyway, he until eighteen forty seven, he writes his uh, he he writes his column and he, and he fishes and he doesn't do a hell of a lot more because he basically he's only one step ahead of the people he's writing for. He's only just taken up fishing again. Yeah. All his previous fishing had ended when he's about 15. <laughs> so, so basically, his writing in a paper with a national circulation is more widely read than the Times, probably. And, like, he doesn't know enough about fishing. So, basically, he's got to go out and fish a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so that's one of the other things about him. Was he, he, was, uh, he was a man who responded to a challenge. Um, there, was a, there was another interesting thing that that drove him really um which was this this alcohol basically by 1840s he had been drinking on such an epic scale that the medical profession couldn't figure out why he was still alive i mean mere words are not adequate to describe how how deeply he fell uh, periodically and to make it more interesting, he had a really clear insight into the things he'd seen and done when he was under the influence while he was drunk. <laughs> and his wife kept a diary of what he said, which would be the most fascinating picture of the underbelly of the Victorian world, but it's been lost. Oh, my goodness. As, as far as we know, this thing has been lost. But it, uh, it was said by a number of people who'd read it that it was probably the most interesting thing he ever wrote, which would be saying something. With all the drinking, Andrew, um, was he still able to get his columns in on time, or did he go missing? Just wait. So what the editor of Bells has on his hands here is he's got this brilliant and charismatic writer. He's fluent in French. who can discuss politics and the classics with anybody. He's got a man of the people. He can charm his way into high society. And on the other hand, he's got a completely wasted, demonic drunk. Give an idea, so give an idea of this, which is a question you're asking. 1840, uh, he contributes eight pieces. So the, the column begins on May the 10th, and it runs to the first week in July, and then it stops for, for, for several weeks. Another column arrives on August 9th, but most of that is given over to dream of having signed the pledge. And then he goes on to discuss a fishing trip on the Thames. Then you get nothing for four months, because he was back on drinking and chasing women, probably. And then the eighth column appears on November 8th. And then the ninth appears on December 13th. How did the Bell's editor put up with it? Well, because his writing was so good. And the other thing was that like, people loved it to bit. I mean, there was absolutely no way there's ever been an angling column like this in the history of time. And you can imagine being around when somebody starts writing this column, which, you know, on one minute is telling you about um, the mayfly hatches on the Wandle, and the next is telling you about the evils of drink. Did he deal just with kind of fishing and, like you said, drinking? Did he ever deal with kind of political issues? Did he bring anything of those kind of topics into his columns? Well, when, when the column returned on December the 13th, 1840, the title had changed to Dreams of a Drunkard. Oh, my God. And there were three pieces. <laughs> the first one, he told people about his marriage <laughs> and how, he'd, how it had happened. The other two were completely about drinking. 
And the, after the last peace appeared, which is generally the third, 1841, there was such an incredible gap that his readers began to ask about his health. But they, they, didn't, they, they were used to him being a bit kind of patchy. So they waited till August before they decided, like, this was a really long time. And um, he didn't take up his pen again until December that year. So there was a gap between January the 3rd and about the first week of December, when he didn't write anything, and when his column came back in December, it was called the Lucid Intervals of a Lunatic. Oh <laughs> <laughs> and this had no fishing in it at all, but it was as popular as hell and just about doubled the sale of the newspaper, apparently. God, and I suppose people, it's hard for us to kind of even imagine the influence these writers had oh. because there was so few newspapers magazines and their circulation was so big that you know and like you said he, he was writing the only angling column so you know the, the, the sheer influence and readership he had was just incredible oh yeah yeah oh he was really 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 popular and the, and the thing was the magazine could be had or the paper could be had all over england and in in sort of lowland parts of scotland the same day so it was, and it was estimated that every column, every copy was read by about eight people because they used to get passed around, um, unlike newspapers today. But it, but the problem was, Dowling, the editor, as you were asking, how did he cope with this? Well, the answer was he was, he was pretty patient. And he used to respond to um, to readers' inquiries about what the hell was happening with the femora by publishing things like our correspondent, Ephemera, is presently angling in very strong waters and consequently many communications on this subject unavoidably stand over. <laughs> oh, my God. So they, he was the kind of, he was the talented prodigal son that he just forgave his absences and, and when he came back, they embraced him. Absolutely. They, I dare say there were some words said whenever he came back, but I think they also knew they couldn't do anything about it. And and he, it's hard to think of anybody ever in the history of, of, well, there's one guy, there was a guy whose name I can't remember, he used to write for The Spectator, who had a similar alcohol problem, and he operated under more or less the same rules. But I, I think Fitzgibbon was probably the better of the two as a writer. Um, but he also managed, the other thing about him is he managed to write four books. Yeah, tell me about those. To the treaty. So the most popular is the one that um, people know the least. Um, it's called The Handbook of Angling. And it went to three editions in his lifetime and two afterwards. And the, the best of those is the 1848 edition. Um, and there's, uh, so, so that, that was his first book. And that was a really big seller for Longman. The, the one that everybody knows best is the Book of the Salmon, which Longman's published in 1850. And that was supposed to be written with William Blacker, but Blacker was ill, so Fitzgibbon ended up writing it with someone else. But on top of that, he edited a new edition of Blaine's Encyclopedia of Rural Sports, which is about a 1,000 pages long. I mean, it's just vast. I mean, he's the, the biggest um, sports encyclopedia of his day. And he also published a edition of Walton's Complete Angler in 1853, and that was regarded as being so good that it's one of the two that is uh, has been most reprinted 
on, in various different editions. So his books sold well then as well, did they? Yeah, they were they they were hugely successful. Handbook of Angling made him a a even more nationally known. And the Book of the Salmon it revolutionised salmon fishing at the time because he wrote it to try and introduce people to the idea that anyone could go fishing for salmon, and they they weren't as hard to catch as as folk were making out. Um, because he'd seen, he, he wrote in one of his columns, he'd seen boys fishing for salmon and catching them. And yet, all the things that, that were written about salmon, the few few articles written about them, made out that it was a bit like like hunting a gorilla barehanded. And he knew William Blacker, yeah? He did indeed. He did indeed. And the reason he knew him was concerned with his column. Because Fitzgibbon, there's two really interesting things about Fitzgibbon. Um, the first is he didn't catch his first salmon until 1847, after he published the first edition of the Handbook of Angling. I, I think the, he was he was obviously highly intelligent. He 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 was the sort of person that everybody naturally liked, and and he he was obviously very good at apologising for whatever he'd done when he was when he was when he was wasted. So um, he, he, it, it's very noticeable that he, uh, when he wrote about things, he would connect almost immediately with whoever the biggest authority was at the time. So um, well, that's how he came into contact with Blackhead because when he started writing the Handbook of Angling, he didn't know anything about salmon fishing. He hadn't really, he'd written about two or three articles about it they weren't actually about salmon fishing. They were about other people's salmon fishing. So he put in an advert asking for someone, preferably Irish, who was in London, who could tie salmon flies. And he knew about salmon fishing. And like that boiled down to about three people. And one of them was William Blacker. So he and Blacker worked together to do the first edition of the Handbook of Angling. Blacker wrote the section about how to catch salmon because Fitzgibbon couldn't. And Blacker also contributed at least half the salmon flies. And was was their friendship, was it one that kind of developed and formed over a lifetime or was it just in the course of the book? I, I think basically they went fishing together. Fitzgibbon went round and, and spent a lot of time in Blacker's shop. And he was actually present. He was one of the two people who were there when Blacker died. And his name appears on Blacker's uh, death certificate from memory. So um, they they became really quite serious friends, which was interesting because Blacker was teetotal and and deeply deeply religious. Whereas Fitzgibbon was neither of those two things. Um, and the other was that uh, I mean certainly um, I think Fitzgibbon's language was regarded as fairly colourful. But, uh, which backers wasn't. So they were complete opposite. Did Fitzgibbon get back to Ireland at all? He went back once, um, but it was it was quite late on in his in his life, and he uh, he only went back um, after he after he'd started. Um, oh, well, um, it may well be after he published the book of the salmon. I can't remember when, but only that one time. Um, the, of course, the famine hit shortly after. Um, Blacker actually went back 
um, when the famine was in progress to see what it could do to help. Fitzgibbon went shortly beforehand, but I, by 1855, he was quite seriously unwell. Um, so, so basically, he, 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 he never really went back again. There's another really interesting thing about him. He, he's well known as, through the Book of the Salmon for, uh, you know, as an expert salmon angler. And he is also, a lot of people think of him as an expert fly tire. But he said twice in print that he did not tie salmon flies. Writing was his, was his, his forte. And he, he used other people to, to produce the flies. And then he would describe them. But he, he couldn't tie them himself. Um, he was quite, as you say, he was quite an amazing man. I mean, he was resourceful. He would get, if he needed to do a thing, he would find somebody who could tell him what to do and he would make sure they were an expert. And um, that's a talent too. William Blacker died in 1856 and a year later, um, Fitzgibbon died then as well. He died in 19th November 1857. Um, he, he wrote... All his columns for the year, <laughs> for once, he actually produced them all on time. Um, and he, he announced he was going to retire from angling journalism. Uh, and then he died. And the, the, uh, it's not, uh, there is no good way to die from alcoholism. I mean, there really, really isn't. <laughs> there are only three exits, and none of them uh, are ones I would want to take. And basically, I mean, he, he, he almost certainly bled to death, as far as I can see. But he, he, he was ready for it. He provided for his wife. Um, he left no debts. He'd written all of his columns, and he decided, he declared he was going to exit from angling journalism. And Dowling, it was George Dowling's son, uh, by then was editor of Bells. And he wrote two obituaries for Fitzgibbon. And in the second one, he wrote that Fitzgibbon was more influential than Isaac Walton had been in attracting people to angling. And I think that's almost certainly true. Wow, that's, that's some legacy, isn't it? Yeah. It, 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 is, it is, it's been said, I mean, I've read it in other places by people who were alive at the time, that, that so many people were inspired by his writing to, to take up fishing. Presumably because Fitzgibbon made it sound fairly exciting and you never knew what you were going to read. And I, I think given the time he lived in, I think he's probably correct that he did cause more people to pick up fishing rods than anybody who'd been alive before. And again, very possibly anybody who'd been alive since because this was such a boom time of angling. Well, it's why I think he's, he's probably the, I mean, he was the first angling journalist. And I would take a lot of persuading that he wasn't and doesn't remain the greatest angling journalist still anywhere. Um, because he actually wrote on such a wide variety of, of, of topics and, and with such authority that I, there aren't many people who could really, really touch him. Tell me this, is there any link or influence do we know, you know, in terms of writings from the kind of early Fly Fishers Club founders, you know, from the latter half of the 1800s? Do they ever reference Fitzgibbon or anything like that? Or? They do. Nobody, I don't think anybody there actually knew him. 
Um, they, they weren't quite old enough to do it. Francis Francis is the one person who probably possibly did. Francis Francis was a lot. He was a young man around the time that um, Fitzgibbon was well in the early 1850s. Francis possibly met Blacker as well. It's a bit hard to know. He's certainly in the shop, but it might have been after Blacker died. So that the one link between um, Fitzgibbon and the Fly Fishers Club would be Francis Francis who is probably the second greatest angling journalist of all time. He nearly deserves a book on his own, really. Any plans to, <laughs> to write one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, is the answer. I, I, would, uh, I would love to do one. I, the problem is, I think he's a bit... He lived a long time ago. It's a bit too specialised, the subject. And it would be one of those things where you're persuading a publisher to do, do a book on... on someone where people would say, Edward Fitzgibbon, who the hell was he? Um, so uh, I've been kind of like slowly raising people's awareness a bit about how, what an interesting man he, he was. Yeah, he would be. I mean, I thanks to um, Bob Franson in Australia, who has tied salmon flies uh, for another book that I'm doing, I, I've got... I got images of every single salmon fly that was ever listed in Edward Fitzgibbon's books, so which is quite something. And um, for this project, which uh, I mean, we're drifting away from the point. But Bob said he would tie some salmon flies for me, and he tied. Well, the estimate now, and it's an estimate, he tied one thousand six hundred classic salmon flies. I know, like everything from when the first salmon flies we know of up to 1867. And that's everything. Everything we have found, he has tied a copy of. So we could, I, I could actually illustrate a, a book about Fitzgibbon's fly tying. I could, we've got every single fly from the Book of the Salmon. We've got every single fly from the handbook of fly tying. We've got all the blackers, flies, obviously, that he did. So he could do a really colourful book on Fitzgibbon, which, with the life of the man behind it, would be um, would, would be kind of interesting. So, yeah, it's, it's there as an idea. And there, there, there are very, very few other angling journalists I know of who could manage to combine a trip to the, to the local brothel with a... Um, with, a, um, with, a, with the details of the mayfly hatch that week. And, uh, and so I think it would be compulsive reading. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I found it absolutely fascinating because it was only through talking to you that I was made aware. I, I, I'd vaguely heard the name Ephemera, but I wasn't really sure of the background. And, and to put him in the context, like you said, in terms of probably you know, more influence than Walton, and yet he's so... Um, little known about you know so maybe maybe hope now is the time to kind of start it again and um but andrew it's been absolutely fascinating people can get your william blacker trilogy if they want to find out more um and tell me about this forthcoming book that you've got coming out it's called the story of the salmon fly and it's about how the irish invented the salmon flies we know it and how they that, that was, it was Basically, the work was done in Ireland in the 1790s, uh, certainly late 18th century, and it was exported to to Britain 
um, in uh, about the second quarter of the 19th century, and then the British took it over and domesticated it from, from what was a, a really beautiful and wild Irish style. And um, Blacker and, and Fitzgibbon played a key role in this. So it's a very visual book. We haven't been able to put all of, uh, of Bob Franson, uh, uh, all of his flies in it, but we put in 700. Uh, most of these flies have never been seen before in, um, in, in print. Um, I guarantee that like 650 of them have never been pictured. They are fantastically colorful. They, they are all brilliantly tied by Bob. And it is the most amazing story. And again, it's about one of these bits of Ireland that people just, I, I think, really don't know about. Is that the, 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 the salmon fly, the classic salmon fly that we know, and, and therefore all the salmon flies we fish today, which are kind of derived from them, they're an Irish invention. They're not a British invention. It's incredible, isn't it? And, and, and that's why I love chatting to you, Andrew, because it's, it's kind of raising awareness, finding out this information, this kind of hidden history that a lot of fly anglers in Ireland as well uh, wouldn't be aware of. So it's, it's, it's absolutely brilliant to find it out. Um, I just want to leave you with, Andrew, with, um, I suppose, your last paragraph that you'd written on um, Fitzgibbon, where you said, how great do I believe ephemeral was? The more I think of it, the more I see him as one of Ireland's greatest treasures. There has never been an angling writer to touch him for sheer breadth of knowledge and nobody could ever match him as a character. But if there is an afterlife and you should meet him there, just make sure you don't end up paying for the drinks. Sums it up brilliantly. Andrew Hurd, thanks a million for, for joining me again. It's been absolutely fascinating as ever. Okay, bye. My thanks to Andrew Hurd for joining me on the show and do keep an eye out for a soon-to-be-released book, The Story of the Salmon Fly. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also keep up to date on irelandonthefly.com as well as on Instagram and I'll be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.